Welcome again to Grace Church of Philly. Special welcome to those that are watching from different places in the world, especially our friends in uh, Africa and Cameroon and uh, other places around the world. Welcome to Grace Church. Take your Bibles this morning and look with me again in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 5. If you remember, I am in the midst of a series on signs of the Messiah. And uh, my hope and my prayer is that you will come to love Jesus Christ more. If you don't know him, you will come to know him and surrender to him. And I also am still praying that we will invite our friends and neighbors to get a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is. Remember John said at the end of his gospel that Jesus did so many mighty works that if we were to write them all down, all of the, the earth could not contain all of the books that would be written. But then John reminds us that he chose certain of those signs, just seven, to point to Jesus Christ as, as the Messiah. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look with me in our text this morning at one of those signs. John chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. Again, this is one of the seven signs that John chooses. And uh, just as a way of introduction to give you a little background to John, if you're familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you read the Gospel of John, you might become aware that, that John is very selective in what he chooses to write. Six of the seven signs that he chooses are not found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are unique to John. But, you know, as John says at the end, Jesus did so much that all the, the world can contain all the books. So John is picking six of the seven that have not been mentioned in the other Gospels. Even when, he, when we went through the Cana cycle, uh, the, the, the woman, uh, the changing of the water to wine and the healing of the official's son. Cana is not mentioned in any of the other gospels. The, the little city on the tip of the Sea of Galilee, not even mentioned. This is unique uh, to John. Even some of the characters that John talks about are unique to his gospel. Nicodemus, uh, the woman at the well, the lame man the man born blind, Lazarus, who is raised from the dead later, uh, not mentioned in any of, of the other Gospels. And as you read through John, you, you realize that he has some very lengthy discourses, some of which are not mentioned in the other Gospels. They're unique to John, the bread of life discourse that we'll look at next week, the good shepherd discourse. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Uh, the upper room discourse, that wonderful passage from uh, John 14 to, through 16. This is all unique to John. You should enjoy reading the Gospel of John. Over a hundred times in the Gospel of John, you will see the word believe. Because John is concerned that you believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And he's concerned that you know that if you do not believe in Jesus, you stand under condemnation and you will face eternal destruction. The text we're looking at this morning is another cycle. Uh, the Cana cycle was one. This is often called the festival cycle, it begins in John chapter 5 and it ends in John chapter 10. And it's called the uh, festival cycle because there's a number of Jewish festivals that are named. There's one unnamed one in our text today. There's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Hanukkah, the celebration of lights. That, that is referred to in this festival cycle. And in this cycle, we know it's sort of a, uh, a self-contained unit because of how it begins with the Jews trying to kill Jesus in John chapter 5, and then it ends in John chapter 10 with the Jews again trying to kill Jesus Christ. The Jews understood the claims of Jesus. Certainly John does, and that's why he's writing. He wants you to understand 
that Jesus is God. He is equal with God. His mighty works show that he is God. The Jews understood clearly that he was God. That is why they tried to kill him. John simply wants us to see Jesus clearly and not resist him. He wants us to know the joy of eternal life. Now to our text this morning, where Jesus heals a man who was disabled for a long time, 38 years suffering. And John's point is, I'll give it to you up front, that Jesus, by the power of his word, can restore wholeness, not just physical wholeness, as he does here, but often what Jesus does physically become is a metaphor, is representative of what he also and more importantly does spiritually. Jesus restores wholeness by the power of his word. And as we look at this text and what Jesus is doing, the first thing I recognize and I rejoice in is that Jesus welcomes the impossible situations in life. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't run from them. He knows what's going on in your life this morning. He knows the struggles you have. He knows perhaps the hopelessness that you feel. Maybe it's been a long time that you've been in a situation and, and you have tried everything and you see no hope in your life. Jesus welcomes the impossible situations. I love the way he models the ministry that he later gives to us. Later he will say to his disciples, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Just do it as a matter of life, you know. As you're going, wherever you're going, wherever you see people in need, make disciples. That's what Jesus does. He's on a journey to an unnamed feast, and he's always has his eyes open for opportunities for ministry, opportunities to show his glory. And this miracle clearly shows his glory. It cannot be disputed. Here's a man who has been in an incurable condition for 38 years. Many people knew this man. They had watched this man so often at this pool of water, believing the superstition that there was some healing power in that water. But this man was helpless, and they saw him. They knew him in his helplessness, and they knew his longing to be whole. This was not a staged healing. John is making that clear because we know that much of what takes place in spectacular Christianity today is fake, it's a fraud, it's a show. You know, many of the faith healers are well known that they've been proven to put people in their audience, you know, with, with fake illnesses, who experience fake healings. Uh, this is very common. Years ago, I remember reading a book by an unbelieving doctor, a non-believing doctor. Uh, they joke about how I say non-believing, unbelieving. Uh, 
But this was a non-believing doctor. And, uh, but he was curious because he wants to see people made whole. And so he investigated the claims of people who healed. He went to the Philippines and investigated the claims of psychics in the Philippines. He went to Tibet and investigated the claims of those who have healing hands. And, and then, in his day, one of the popular faith healers was, was Catherine Kuhlman. And she held massive crusades throughout uh, this country. And so he went to her crusades. He took down the names and addresses of people who claimed to be healed. He investigated. And the conclusion of his book, not just for uh, the psychic healers in the Philippines or the healing hands of Tibet or Catherine Kuhlman, his conclusion in all of it was he did not find a single case of miraculous healing. He said sometimes some of what appeared to be a healing could be attributed to what he called psychosomatic, that, you know, it was the mind affecting the body, but there was not one case of miraculous healing. Much of it, if not all of it, is often staged. It's a fraud. But Jesus selects this man because everyone knows this man is really an invalid. He is really disabled. But as we read the story, as John writes his gospel, he wants us to be clear that the healing is not an end in itself. It is a sign that points to Jesus Christ. And in this text, it particularly points to his word, which has the power to bring wholeness to this lame man. If, if healing was the main focus, if we were to read this text and say, wow, Jesus spoke the word and healed me, so I can expect that he will do the same for me. If I ask him, he'll speak the word and heal me. That's not John's point, because if healing were the point, then I would imagine that he would have healed everyone lying by the pool that day. But Jesus meets this one man. He meets him where he is in his impossible situation in life. 38 years of suffering, 38 years of no relief, 38 years of no one to help, 38 years of longing for wholeness, 38 years of despair, 38 years of many tears, 38 years of hopelessness. This is this man's life, but the likelihood is it may be your life today too, that you have been in a long time struggle for happiness, for joy, for peace, to be free from guilt and shame and, or perhaps the power of sin in your life. While pastoring in Brooklyn, there was a married couple that began attending our church from one of the Middle Eastern countries. They'd been married about 
35 years. He was a doctor of psychiatry and uh, was head of one of the departments at one of the main hospitals, hospitals in, in New York. As I got to know them, as they attended regularly, and I got to know him and meet with this man, he began to share with me how, how terrible their marriage was and how miserable and hopeless he was in that marriage. And he explained how his family and his culture prevented him from seeking a divorce, and so he had resigned himself to a life of unhappiness. So this married man, and I would say his wife also, as I got to know her, they had 35 years of suffering. 35 years of no relief. 35 years of no one seeming to help. Even his doctor of psychiatry did not help him resolve the issues in his marriage. 35 years of longing for happiness. 35 years of despair. 35 years of tears. 35 years of hopelessness. He had already given up, but he was imprisoned in unhappiness in his mind. As I sat down with them week after week, as we opened the Word of God together, and they began to see the kind of marriage God designed for them. You know, at first they were reluctant. They said, we've been married 35 years. We, 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 we know about marriage. And I argued, no, you don't have 35 years of experience in building a marriage. You have one bad year, which was your first year, repeated 35 times. That's all you have. You haven't grown. Whatever, whatever you had at the beginning, you were never able to resolve, and you just repeated it year after year. No, we need to go back and excavate your marriage, take out that weak foundation you have, and rebuild a foundation on the Word of God. And if you re rebuild a foundation on the Word of God, then you can build a house that will stand and a house that will be happy to live in. And so they began, as we studied God's Word together, to examine themselves in light of the Word of God. They stopped blaming each other. They stopped fighting with each other. They began to pray and confess their sin, to look at their own sin, and ask the Holy Spirit to gently and gradually transform their lives. And what a joy it was to see them again beginning to grow and flourish and thrive and be happy. And as far as I know, 25 years later or more, they are still together, not just enduring a marriage, but enjoying a life together. Jesus is not afraid of your problems. He welcomes them. It's an opportunity for him to show you his power and his glory if you will just come to him. 
and listen to him and believe his word and surrender to him. He welcomes those impossible situations in life. And the truth is, you long to be made whole, and Jesus knows that. Someone has said that the first step toward wholeness is a deep desire for it. I don't think that the average person wants to live in misery unless there's something wrong with their mind. We long for wholeness. We long for that marriage to be healed, for that, for that peace in our heart, for that struggle with sin to be over, for that guilt to be, to, to, to be removed. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, and it sounds strange, doesn't it? Do you want to be healed? The words of Jesus, like his words to the woman at the well and his words to Nicodemus, linguistically have the possibility of double meanings. And contextually, they do have double meanings. You know, Jesus talks about thirst. He talks about water. He talks about birth. And there's double meanings. There's physical birth. There's spiritual birth. There's physical water. There's, there's living water. And here he talks about wholeness. And the word, uh, the word can mean physical wellness. Or it can just mean wholeness. He healthy, not just physically, but healthy, spiritually, emotionally. On the physical level, the answer is obvious. Why is this man been by this pool for such a long time and so often. He wants to be healed. So Jesus meets him on his physical level, on his surface need, what we call the, the, the felt need of someone. But we'll see that later in his second encounter with, the, with this man, he's probing to the deeper need. The layman responds to Jesus saying he has no one to help him. And I imagine being that lame man. I hope you do that when you read the Bible. You try to put yourself in the place of people that are there. And as the crowds pass by him every day, him believing that that water had some power to heal him and you may have noted, depending on which Bible translation you use, that uh, the one we use, the ESV, leaves out the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4, which talks about an angel coming and stirring the water. And, and uh, most uh, scholars believe that's what they call a gloss, you know, something that somebody wrote in the margin trying to explain what was happening with the water moving, uh, and then later got added to the text. But... Most evangelicals would say that it was a superstition, that if somehow I can get into that water, I can be healed. But it was real to him. It was a real belief to him. And his disappointment, his, hopeless, his sense of hopelessness, that was real to him. He longed for somebody to help him. But nobody cared about this man and his helplessness. 
He was not only imprisoned in a body that could not walk, he was imprisoned in a life of loneliness, a life of helplessness, a life of despair. Some years ago, I wrote these words, pressed down and battered, defeated and shattered, hearts cruelly broken, words rarely spoken, no comfort around, false hope surrounds, floods of new tears, ghosts of old fears, darkness pervades, tar paper shades, a voice in the room piercing the gloom, life-giving words, good news is heard, Jesus is risen, sin is forgiven, heaven is sure, life evermore. That's where Jesus brings us from our being pressed down and battered, defeated and shattered, to sin is forgiven, Jesus is risen, heaven is sure, life evermore. There are a lot of people like this disabled man who live daily in despair. Many of them unbelievers, but many believers also who Jesus wants to speak to, to speak words of life, words of joy, words of forgiveness. Again, I don't think anyone chooses brokenness for their lives. Our sinful choices and unwise choices often lead to brokenness. But we don't choose brokenness. We naively believe that even our sinful and unwise choices are going to result in our happiness. We don't choose brokenness. And then I meet people who, who live with the resignation like that that married man of 35 years, that brokenness is his destiny. Maybe he even began to believe it was normal. Nobody has a happy marriage. I've never seen a happy marriage. And yet there are others like this disabled man who superstitiously lie by the side of helpless pools of water hoping that someone will reach out and rescue them. They have this false belief that if something would happen, if they could know someone or have something, that they could be delivered from their despair. Recently, we went to a concert at the Borgata in Atlantic City. We did not go to gamble, if that's what you're asking. Like most casinos, the Borgata is a beautiful, luxurious piece of architecture. The hotels, the restaurants, the stores, everything is first class. I mean, you feel like you are royalty when you walk into a place like that. But I'm reminded whenever I see that kind of glitz and glitter, that the front door of sin is like that. We always think it's glorious. But the back door of sin, 
You know, the back alleys of Atlantic City are filled with prostitution and crime and, 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 and violence and broken homes and sadness and despair. But as we walked to where the venue was, we had to walk through the casino where all the slot machines were. And there were hundreds, I mean hundreds and hundreds of slot machines with people of all ages sitting at them, putting in a credit card and pulling a lever. And as I read my, the text this week, I thought of that and I thought, they're just like this disabled man. They superstitiously sit by a helpless slot machine hoping that something will happen that will heal their brokenness and change their lives. I mean, they really believe, and that's why they keep inserting the card and keep putting in more money and keep pulling that lever that maybe something is going to pour out of that machine that will change my life. We all long to be made whole. We want happiness, every single one of us. But our superstitions, our false hopes, our idolatries, the lies of this world do not heal our brokenness. Only Jesus can. And the good news for you this morning is that you're not sitting at a slot machine, whether you're here or watching on YouTube or Vimeo or Facebook. You're listening to the Word of God, which has power to deliver you. And I hope you will believe. Because John wants us, wants us to see that Jesus, through the power of his Word, can restore our wholeness. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And that once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now we understand that the words that Jesus spoke to that man are not words that he's speaking to us personally. But John records it because he wants us to see the power of the Word of God. That just as Jesus can say, as he will do in another instance, take up your bed and walk, he can say, your sins are forgiven. That guilt that you're living, at, living with, that shame that, that that keeps you awake at night, your sins are forgiven. That loneliness that you feel deep inside as if no one loves you, no one cares about, Jesus said, God loves you. I love you. I laid my life down for you. Live in my love. Believe it. That's what... John was telling us in the story of Nicodemus and the story of the woman at the well, this incredible love of God, this 
incredible water that can bring satisfaction to your soul? Now, Jesus doesn't say to you and me, take up your bed and walk. I mean, Richard would love to hear that, wouldn't you? But he'll say something better to Richard. He'll say, son, drink my living water and be satisfied inside. Believe in me and the love of God and my sacrifice on the cross and I'll give you eternal life. And if you never walk physically again in this world, you will sit or move with your walker with the joy of God in your life. In Jesus' second encounter with this man, he sows a seed of truth. He awakens this man's need to look at his sin. The most natural reading of the words See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The most natural reading is that this man's condition had something to do with something that he had done. Now, that's not always the case. Don't make that mistake of saying that, you know, I'm suffering this because I did this. But it's always the possibility. And you should always examine that possibility in your life. Ultimately, we know that all of our suffering, all of our despair, all of our brokenness is because of sin. Sin is real. Sin is in the world. Sin infects the entire world we live in. But sometimes it is because of my sin. And Jesus sows that seed in this man's life. He says enough to get that man thinking. Sometimes that's all we do in an an evangelistic encounter. There's no record, no indication that this lame man was converted in this text. But he's got seeds sown in him. I would like to think that Many of these encounters that people had with Jesus and the Gospels where there is no evidence in the text that they actually believed, I would like to believe that after Jesus died on the cross, rose again, showed himself alive, one time to 500 people, that there were men like this standing in that crowd saying, yes, he's the one who said, take up your bed and walk. He really is the Son of God with power. And as John ends the story, he wants us to know that Jesus is above human regulations, human religious distinctions, that he does what religion cannot do, what the law cannot do. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Of course, technically, he didn't break the Sabbath. He broke one of the 39 categories of work that rabbis had put together to define what it means not to work on the Sabbath day. So they had 39 different categories with subcategories of things you couldn't do. Taking up your bed was one of them. But that was a man's regulation. Jesus' point is God is working. 
and I'm working. And when it comes to restoring wholeness to a human being, that overrides any religious uh, prohibition you may, you may put on someone. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus knows the very character of God. Those who made religious rules then, they thought God made that law to create unhappiness, to restrict people's lives, to make them so introspective and, and examine themselves so much that they would live in misery on the Sabbath. No, Jesus knows the Father who created the Sabbath that he wants wholeness. He's glad that this man is healed on the Sabbath day. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And ultimately, he actually fulfills the intent of the Sabbath. We have no Sabbath day to day because we find our Sabbath in Jesus Christ. We rest in him. As I think about our text this morning, there's no great conversion story to tell. Jesus has powerfully touched a life with a physical miracle. But more importantly, he has demonstrated the power of his words. When he speaks, he can bring physical wholeness if he chooses. But more importantly, when he speaks, he can bring wholeness to your soul. Regardless of how long you've lived with guilt, regardless of how long you've struggled with sin, regardless of how long you've lived in defeat and despair, Jesus can meet you today in your impossible situation and he can give you life right now. Later in this text, as Jesus is speaking to the Jews who wants to kill them, he says this. He said, whoever hears my words and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life right now and will never, not ever, come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Just as Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. Jesus said, if you believe my word, you will go from being spiritually dead and alienated from God and headed to eternal death. You will pass into life, a present relationship with God that goes on into an eternal relationship with God forever. You can have that right now. Believe and live. That's what Jesus says to us today. Believe and live. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for such a wonderful, compassionate, gracious, and powerful demonstration of Jesus' mighty, powerful words. And just as he spoke wholeness to this man physically, 
We're thankful this morning that there are no hopeless cases listening today. There is no man or woman, no young person, who, if they will not believe your word, can be made whole this morning. We thank you for dying the death that we deserve, Lord Jesus, for rising again to give us a life that we don't deserve, and then for staying with us throughout all of time and all eternity. I pray this morning for anyone, Father, who's listening, who has never believed, who has never heard your words to them, you are forgiven, you are free from guilt, you are free from shame. You belong to me forever. Father, help someone today to find joy in believing. And I wonder, while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, wherever you are today, if you have never trusted Christ, surrendered to him, told him that you believe in him, that he died for you and rose again, I pray that you would do that right now, wherever you are, in a simple prayer like this between you and God, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am helpless to do anything about it. But I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. And today, I repent of my sin, and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe his power, his words can save me today. Save me right now for Jesus' sake. If you pray that and believe it, then our wonderful, gracious God will take you from death to life in a moment. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. Father, help some to do that today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.